0: I have always been fascinated by cemeteries. At first, they were scary to me because the music video thriller fucked me up as a four-year-old, and I kept thinking that the dead are going to come up and pull me back to the graves with them. But the older I got, the more I realized that it isn't the dead that I had to worry about. It's the living. What I find most disconcerting about cemeteries is that, same as in life, there are monsters buried among them, and we have no idea. Men and women who have destroyed the lives of others are also buried in the tranquility of the innocent as they lay in their final resting places. It's not like their headstones blare the epitaph murderer. I used to live three minutes away from the cemetery where the monster in this day's episode is buried. I've passed the cemetery about a thousand times, and when I realized where he was buried, I had to go see it. I'll admit to being that kind of person. If I'm gonna tell this story of the dead, which happened in my hometown, I wanted to see the places and see the headstones and get a sense of the people behind the words of which I'm going to speak. I wanted to physically touch and see their headstones with their names carved on it and feel the gravity of the situation. It's easy as hell to tell a story and even easier to read it, but there are real people behind these words and real pain behind the gist of the tale. Once I did that, once I saw the headstones of not only the murderer, but the innocent ones who were murdered, it made it more real for me these people were buried as I was learning how to walk and talk and the murderer was buried before my third birthday I made it a point to stop and see the graves of those he was convicted of murdering two of the children the little boys were buried 15 minutes from my current home a mile away from where they were taken from this world but separated in death from their mother and sister they were buried in the same coffin because they were so small it took no time to find the cemetery It's a very small graveyard across from a Quaker church, almost in the middle of nowhere. If you didn't know it was there, you wouldn't be able to find it. Chisel on the stone, which contains pictures of the boys dressed in their smart little suits, is the inscription, "'I'll lend you for a little time, a child of mine,' Christ said, "'for you to love the while he lives and mourn for when he's dead. "'But shall the angels call for him much sooner than we planned? "'We'll brave the grief that comes and try to understand.'" It brought me to tears. Their mother and sister are buried at least 40 minutes north in a bigger cemetery in Brownsburg, but still, it's small in comparison to the cemetery where the murderer now rests. There's a photo of the mom and her three children fastened to the stone, a very pretty woman, just barely 21, and her children all under the age of five. Each grave has markers of visitors who loved them in life and still love them now, angel statues and flowers adorning the headstones. His grave is bare, nondescript and sinking into the ground. Weeds growing over his despicable name. No hint in death as to the monster he was in life. While diving into the story, I realized most of the places where many of these events took place were near places I'd lived. Places where I still travel in the city and places that still, to this day, hold childhood memories. I never noticed their ghosts until now. But once I saw them... I could never unsee them again. (laughs) This (laughs) This is a new everybody, thanks for joining me on the first episode of the Wheel of Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Megan, and let's go ahead and jump right into the episode. So let's get in our wayback machine, and I'm going to take you back to April 28, 1979 in Indianapolis. It was an early Saturday morning in early spring. Terry Lee Chasteen, who lived with her boyfriend and her three children, now her children were not the children of the boyfriend. Uh, they lived in Speedway, less than a mile away from the Indianapolis 500 racetrack. And she was taking her kids to the babysitter's house so she could start her shift at the Marsh Supermarket on Lafayette Road in the Eagledale Shopping Center. Her work was not very far from her residence, but because the babysitter probably didn't live near either her work nor her residence, she had to get on I-465 going south, which is a highway that circles the city of Indianapolis, if you're not familiar. Now, as she's driving and nearing I-70 on the southwest side, it's around 6.30 a.m., a man driving a utility Uh, slash construction truck, motions for her to pull over, pointing at the back of her car. After she pulls over, the man points at her tire and says that it looked really, really loose, so he was going to tighten it up for her. Uh, The man then, without her knowing, jammed up the parking brake, and when she told him she couldn't get it disengaged, he told her to pop pop open the hood. And when she did this, he reached in and ripped out the coil wire without her noticing, so this way he could disarm her and get her in the car and so several witnesses report seeing this young woman on the side of the highway with the hood up and a young man driving this type of truck helping her out several several hours later roughly 9 a.m or so along the banks of white lit creek in mooresville which is a town just southwest of indianapolis some mushroom hunters and it's always the mushroom hunters that discover shit uh i never want to go mushroom hunting man Anyway, they discovered the new body of Terry floating face down in the creek. After police arrived, they found her three children, Misty, age 5, Stephen, age 4, and Mark, age 2, dead in the water. It didn't take very long before the police discovered who murdered the young mother and her children, though, because there were several eyewitnesses who not only saw the young woman and her children with this young blonde man, but also his vehicle was at the side of the bridge uh, on the creek. And if if you... White Creek, it it goes underneath of State Road 67, which is Kentucky Avenue, so there's really no place to hide. It's a very open space, so he would have to be visible on the side of the road. Anyway, and and it's not like he was driving a very nondescript vehicle. This was kind of noticeable. People remember something like this. It was red and silver, kind of like half primed, half painted. Um, So it was the account of Young One Witness, this meddling kid, um who connected all the dots for the police this came in the form of a young man named eddie who was out with his dad Um, they were going to church or something like that they decided to go to the police station because eddie said he recognized this vehicle Uh, he had seen it across from his school at a construction site the year before because they were building houses over there and after speaking with the foreman that was on that particular job they discovered that that truck was registered to a man named robert carr who lived at Lynnhurst and searley drive on the southwest side of Indianapolis, maybe about 20 minutes, 25 minutes from Mooresville. After getting in touch with Mr. Carr and questioning him, he told the police that his foster son, Stephen, was using the vehicle at the time of the murders, and he hadn't seen him for a few days. Stephen Timothy Judy was arrested later that day after returning home to mow his foster parents' yard. What a good kid. He later told his foster mother, Mary, that he may have killed Terry, but he was adamant that he didn't kill the kids. And soon, Judy would become the most hated man in Indiana. At his trial, he said that he turned to Terry after getting off of I-465 onto Kentucky Avenue and asked her if she realized what was about to happen to which she said yes. Now, part of me wonders what was going on through her head at this point. She's got three kids with her who have no clue what's going on. Uh, They think they're going to the babysitter's house. Was she asking him not to do this? Was she begging? Was she letting her kids know how panicked that she was? Part of me says, no, I don't think they really realized the gravity of the situation. So once they get to the creek, the kids are told to go ahead uh, towards the creek down the trail. <clears throat> and after the kids left him, he ordered her to undress and he raped her right there on the side of the, of the on that trail. He took her work smock and ripped it up into pieces and tied her hands behind her back and then strangled her with it. The kids heard her cries and came back uh, surrounding Judy and he start, they started yelling and screaming at him. And during his testimony, he said he felt like he was looking through a tunnel and hearing everything as if he had a can on his head. He said everything was just speeding along and he had no idea why he was doing what he was doing. Everyone was screaming, he said. He strangled Terry while the kids were watching. He picked up Misty and threw her into the creek and did the same thing with the little boys. He even started covering up his tracks at the scenes, which told the prosecutor that he knew exactly what he was doing, even though the defense was trying to make it seem like he was insane at the time of the murders. He even said that he saw one of the boys standing up in the creek, but doesn't say anything about possibly shoving him back down to the water. But he had to have. They died by drowning, and the creek was shallow enough that even being thrown into the water, a child could easily stand up. Even had he, even had he thrown them into the water, as he says, they may have survived. And maybe they had a couple broken bones. But the, the coroner's office said that they had nothing. They had no skull fractures. They had no broken bones. They died from drowning. So what that makes me think is that he went into the water and held each of them down until they drowned. I mean, what, what makes a, a person do that to a child? That's just insane. Did he set out to do this, or was this a crime of opportunity? Was it nature, or was it nurture? By all accounts, Steve Judy had anything but a normal upbringing. His parents, Vernon and Myrtle, were not one of those ki- kind of parents that you would call nurturing by any means. Uh, Vernon was in and out of jail through Steven Jung's life, and to make ends meet, his mom had to engage in sex work in their home, allowing a parade of unsavory characters to come in and out of the house. Now, you have to understand, too, he was doing this, she was doing this in front of the children. She didn't hide it. She made no attempts to cover any of this up. She just was like, okay, this is what we're gonna do. And, uh, anyway, his father would beat his mother a lot, and, uh, they didn't hide that from the kids either I mean they did it right there out in the open beat each other up cussed each other out it was a very very toxic relationship and she'd often go back to him there's only one book about him uh, by bet Nunn called burn judy burn which is basically like a bird's eye view of the case and his life meaning they didn't go into a whole lot of significant details and it could just be because there were no significant details to uncover there's only one person telling the story and he was basically a fucking liar But anyway, of all this, one thing is very clear, and a lot of people have said this too, that Stephen sexualized his mother. And his mother did nothing to stop it, in fact, probably encouraged it. Um, According to Masha Hamilton, that's M-A-S-H-A, on her website, mashahamilton.com, she spent some time with the Carr family before his execution, and Mary Carr had told her that Myrtle had indeed sexually abused uh, young Steve. Bent Nunn was a report for the local newspaper in Martinsville and was tasked with the responsibility of reporting the trial. As you can imagine, Steve didn't go on to become an upstanding citizen. Uh, he was in and out of trouble and did things most children his age simply didn't do, like push girls down and put his hands up their skirts and grab their breasts at 10 years old. His parents left pornography around the house like coffee table books, so he got an unorthodox sexual education early on. It was reported that at the age of 10, he climbed into bed with his stepsister, Uh, who was 14, and they had sex, and that's how he lost his virginity. He would break into cars, houses, and steal from stores, and started getting drunk, all at the age of about 11 or 12. And around this age, he was also taken from his parents and placed in a juvenile center in Indy in 69, so yeah, he was probably about 12 at that time. Eventually he was given back to them even though the authorities felt that the parents were, no, were not really good influences on him. Now, can you imagine how different his life and the life of so many other people would have been different had he not been returned to them? <laughs> Maybe what had happened next would never have happened. Um, so at the age of 13 he committed his first significant crime and what this is, this, this is the first one of record. Um, He was 13 years old, April 17, 1970. Uh, He chose a 22-year-old woman named Carol Emig as his first victim. The story goes he had been sent up to the store by his sister to get some hairspray, and that's when he saw Carol driving by. Uh, So he followed her to an apartment building, and once she was inside, he knocked on the door pretending to sell Boy Scout tickets, and he had asked if her husband was home because he could only sell them to him for some reason. But she said no, and that's when he pulled out a knife and forced his way into her apartment. He told her, I'm going to rape you. She was so scared and shocked that she didn't resist him. I mean, you don't expect a 13-year-old to come in. And, and, you know, some kids at this age, they get pretty big and beefy. So maybe he was big enough that she couldn't have fought him off. Uh, So he ordered her to remove her clothes and then raped her on her bed. Afterwards, she expected him to leave. Uh, But instead of leaving, he started stabbing her with a pocket knife, which pierced her skin. 42 times and left 18 significant stab wounds after breaking the knife stabbing her he left the room now while he was gone carol grabbed a hatchet she just happened to have in the bedroom um, after a camping trip with her husband and they hadn't unpacked everything and then she blocked the door with her hope chest however he was hell bent on getting in and he pushed his way through the door carrying a kitchen knife a huge kitchen knife can you imagine a 13 year old coming at you with a kitchen knife after stabbing you 42 fucking times I, I can't imagine that. So anyway, seeing the hatchet was in her hand and it was upraised, he grabbed it from her and hit her in the head with it like four times with the sharp the sharp end of it. He ended up severing one of her fingers uh, as she was trying to fend off his, his blows. Steve ended up cutting himself and ran to the bathroom to check his wound, of course. After wrapping up his hand, he ran out of the apartment, but miraculously, Carol survived. She was found later by her husband and the police. She had tried to get to the phone uh, before collapsing and passing out, but uh, she just didn't make it. Thankfully, somebody came home and found her and was able to get to her in time. Steve arrived home covered in blood and his sister called the cops after he told her he was attacked by a man. He rode around with the police for a while looking for this mysterious person who he said attacked Carol and then attacked him because he was trying to save her. Eventually, he confessed to what he did and was taken to the juvenile center and then transferred to Central State Hospital, which is a well-known mental institution in Indianapolis. You guys have to understand Central State is one of those places where, see, back in the 70s, they didn't have the focus on mental health that they do today. Today, they would take you to a psychiatric hospital if you committed something like this. But even if you were having just a nervous breakdown, they would have put you in Central State. No matter what you did, they put you in one place with a bunch of different people who they had no idea what was going on with them. Criminally insane and just somebody with a mental disorder. It's crazy shit. So anyway, at this time, Carol was having so many surgeries, she had to have several on her brain and her abdominal area as well as open heart surgery because one of the stab wounds had pierced her heart. And at this age, Stephen was diagnosed as a sexual psychopath. At the age of 13, he was diagnosed as a sexual psychopath. That should have raised huge red flags um, that a child was already diagnosed this way. He kind of slipped through the cracks at this point. So while he was in Central State, he met a boy named Tony Colvin, and they became pretty good friends. They would get weekend passes, and during those times, they'd break into cars and steal anything they could sell. And Steve it up with a key that would help him slip in and out of bed after the 11 o'clock bed check, of course. Uh, while he was out, they picked up girls and they drank booze and they had sex parties on all those weekend retreats, all while Carol was having surgery to correct the violence that Judy had rendered upon her. She attended Washington High School, which was right down the street from the hospital. And after being kicked out, he attended Manuel High School for some time, but then was kicked off of, off of, the, off of the property for throwing a kid off a footbridge. Steve met Tony's family around this time and became pretty close with his half-brother, Robert Carr his wife, Mary, and their four kids. The Cars would soon become his foster family, and they were probably one of the few people in the world that actually gave a fuck about Steve. The hospital at this time had given them a partial explanation for why Steve had been there, uh, and they did tell Mrs. Carr that Mrs. Emig was attacked, but they didn't go into the severity of it. They didn't tell her she was raped. They didn't tell her how bad it really was, just that she was attacked. She was also told at this time that Steve had hostility towards his mother and probably had had a nervous breakdown. So in January of 72, when Steve was 15, he began living with the cars. Now right away, they had problems getting him to stick to the curfew and drink in and continuing his old party ways. He also tried to sleep with a babysitter and they couldn't leave him alone with anybody hired to watch the children. Robert and Mary really weren't much older than Steve, so therefore they had a really hard time disciplining him, but they treated him like one of their own kids and loved him despite all the issues that he had. These were really good people. He did give them a lot of hell, though. He stole their car and ended up taking off to Illinois, where he ended up wrapping the car around a pole, which sent him to the hospital. Now, by all accounts, he was just a troubled boy. They had a bad upbringing. And he would eventually go back to Washington High School, but he quit after his sophomore year when he cut the halter top off of a female classmate. And now, a word from our sponsor. Steve moved to Texas after meeting a girl named Jeannie, but like everything else, it fell through and he moved back to Indiana. He stole his uncle's car around this time and took his younger brother and sister with him to New Orleans. While he was there, he was picked up in connection to an accusation of rape, and he served jail time for traffic offenses, but was never convicted of anything else. When he came back to Indiana, he started working as a truck driver and ended up in Naperville, Illinois the evening of July 23rd, 1975. He had been drinking that night and came across a 17-year-old girl sitting in the parking lot in a car waiting for her boyfriend to get off work. The girl's name was Susan McFadgen. He approached her, asking her for the time and making small talk. Eventually, he pulled out a knife and forced his way into the car. Susan was able to get out of the vehicle and started to run, but Steve caught up to her. He knocked her down and began punching her in the face. He hit her nearly 50 times and tried to choke her. But a man heard her crying for help and jumped out of his vehicle and tried to intervene. When he saw the man coming towards them, uh, Steve hit her one more time in the face before running away. He was eventually caught later on that evening. So for this, he received a three-year sentence in Stateville Prison in Joliet. Steve said that during this time, he had been raped at knife point by a big burly man, but he never turned anybody in for it. Cause you know, snitches and stitches. So in the book, Burn Judy Burn* by Bette Nunn, she says that at this time he begins fantasizing about his mother while he's in prison and planning on talking to her about making out when he's released. In March of 77, he's paroled back to Indianapolis and he meets up with his mother and they end up going out drinking and having a good time. Um, now, while he was in prison, the cars had opened, a ta- opened up a tavern and he wanted to go visit and hang out. She was really jealous of his love for the cars and accused Steve of wanting to have sex with Mary. Myrtle ended up leaving the tavern and calling the police, saying that the cars were keeping him against his will, but the police quickly realized that it was Myrtle who was causing the issues and they made her leave. She told him that she never wanted to see him again, and this could have reinforced in Steve his seeming hatred for women. He moved back in with the cars, but continued his old ways of drinking and stealing and whoring and boozing. A month after he was released from prison in the early hours of April 19th, 1977, and this is two years before the murders, uh, Steve came across Pamela Berger sitting in front of the post office waiting for it to open. He forced himself into the car, told her that he'd been to prison, he'd killed before, and he would do it again if she didn't do what he told her. She tried to get away, but couldn't. He forced her face into his lap and drove away with her in her own car. He asked her if, he thought, if she thought that he was going to rape her, to which she said she hoped he didn't. He told her, no, I don't get my, my kicks from raping chicks. Pamela fought him, though, and grabbed the hand holding the knife and was able to jerk the steering wheel. Now, he was cut by his own knife, but somehow he was able to bite her hand and then started beating her head into the door. And he screamed, you're dead right into her face. But somehow she was able to get the door open and she ended up falling onto the pavement onto Harding Street, which is State Road 37, not too far from Mooresville. She passed down, she flagged down a passing motorist and they took her to five points where she called the police. Now this is a little far away from where, where, where she had fallen out of the uh, the vehicle. Uh, The police later found her vehicle in the White River. Uh, the police arrested Steve for this and it went to trial. It ended up in a hung jury because one of the jurors wasn't sure of Pamela's story. He kind of found it impossible to believe what she was saying. Steve entered a plea of guilty for stealing, stealing the car, but the kidnapping and assault charges were dropped probably because he didn't actually kidnap or rape her. Um, he got out on time serve while awaiting the trial, causing Pamela severe anxiety ever since that, that time. By September of '78. He was free again. This time, he would meet a woman named Sylvia Inez Peel and moved in with her. He moved in with these girls rather quickly. Everything kind of worked fast for him. Um, Now, coincidentally, she worked for the Marsh Supermarket where Terry Lee Chasteen worked. They knew of each other, but they didn't know each other. Steve had met several women around this time with whom he would bounce around. Jenny Barnes was a friend of his already who, along with his buddy Tony Colvin, had introduced him to a girl named Patty Weitzel. This was a girl that he was staying with supposedly around the time the murders occurred. They started dating around this time and moved in pretty quick, like within a week, like he always seemed to do. He cycled in between all these women without making any commitments to any of them. He just wanted a place to stay, a place where he could get drunk, and somebody to fuck. So on November 25th, 1978, Steve, Tony, and another friend were drinking, and somebody suggested that they go rob a store. So they end up going to a place called Malik Market, where they bought some junk food and they left. So after the market clears out, Steve goes back inside and he lays a zinger cake on the counter. He pulls out a gun and demands the clerk, Mary Teeters, give him all the money in the register. And he even said, if you have money in your cigar box, give that to me too, otherwise I'm going to blow your head off. She did as she was instructed and told him that's all the money she had. Now he made her lay on the floor, which was kind of hard because she was a big woman. What Steve didn't know was that Mary had put some $2 bills in a bag, which she figured would be easy to identify later on if they caught the guy, which they did because they were driving recklessly down the street because they were drinking. Mary was able to identify Steve and he was arrested. Steve asked the cars to bail him out. The bond was set at about $7,500 and even 10% of that money was a lot back then for the cars. That was probably close to $5,000 in today's money. Um, But while he was in jail, he attempted suicide and another mate ended up calling for help. Because of this attempt, the cars decided to go ahead and bail him out. He was actually released on an error. Uh, The bail bondsman was supposed to be the one posting the bail, not the family, but the jail clerk was under the assumption that the money had come from a bail bondsman. Steve was released again by April 23rd, 1979, five days before the murders. Steve made a beeline for Jeannie's house instead of going to the cars, who had bailed him out, because he felt he was, quote, sex-starved. He spent a few days with her, having sex three or four times a day, drinking booze and smoking pot every night after working all day. He began to take diet pills at this time, um, uppers and downers as well. He was with her until the morning of April 28th, 1979. He was driving her and a lady with whom she lived, uh, Mrs. Ferris. Um, they, he was driving them home, but, she, but he was driving really recklessly. He was trying to see just how close he could get to the parked cars on the street without actually hitting them. And, you know, they didn't like that. So after arriving home safely, Steve got very quiet and withdrawn, and he told Jeannie he was going to go check the toolboxes on the truck to make sure that they were locked up. This was about 3 a.m. He didn't come back into the house, and the ladies just figured he was going to go find his other girlfriend, Patty. Nobody knows what happened to Steve between 3 and 6 that morning, but we do know what happened once he found Terry and her children on 465 around 630. So let's go right into the trial. I'm not gonna talk a whole lot about the trial because it really was just, it was a circus. He loved all this coverage and that's why he became one of the most hated men because he was such a narcissistic twat about everything. He loved seeing himself on the TV and reading any article that was published about him. He would search the newspapers front to back to find more information about himself. And he was largely unremorseful. He didn't really see anything that he had done wrong. Four of the women that he had attacked had testified against him, Pamela Barker, Mary Teeters, Susan McFadden, and Carol Emig. The testimony of the women, as well as his own testimony on the stand, is what eventually sealed his fate. The jurors later came out and said that without this testimony, they probably would have found it very difficult to convict him, and he would have ended up walking free. Now, it's interesting to note that while Carol Emig gave her testimony, the defense and Judy had requested not to be in attendance at the trial, Uh, under the guise that Judy couldn't stand to hear the testimony that had happened when he was a kid. Others believe it was because Judy and his team were afraid of Mr. Emig. He was still pissed about what happened. And there were a lot of threats being made at this time, not just on the lives of Judy and his defense team, but the judge as well during this trial. Like I said, at this time, he was the most hated man in Indiana. And this is at a time in Indiana where the death penalty had just come back into law. So you have a lot of proponents for and against. A lot of people in the state were against the death penalty. And so they were threatening the judge. Steve had said during his testimony that he didn't feel that rape was wrong and had admitted to one of his doctors that he would raped a lot of women, upwards of 15, and he would lost count at one point, he said. He would catch someone in a, quote, bad situation, someone in need, and would smack them around, degrade them, or whatever. But he couldn't explain why he felt the need to rape Anybody, as he had a dozen girls he could go to at any time. Now, it's important to know here that rape is not about sex. It's about power. And he felt helpless over his own life. He felt powerless over the women in his life, over other people. And I think that's probably why he did these things. The girls he would go to at any time were typically women of ill repute. Now, they're not necessarily prostitutes, but you have to understand these women, there were loose girls who had a lot of boyfriends, um, girls that Maybe they had a kid, but they didn't have custody of their kid. Their parent was taking care of him or the other parent of that child was taking care of him. Um, I just think that maybe he he tended to go towards girls that were in the situations that his mom was in when, she, when he was younger. The girls that he seemed to attack were very pretty. He had a lot, they had a lot of things going for them. And perhaps I think these are girls that he felt really insecure with, like like he wouldn't have a chance with them. In any case, he felt no guilt about what he did to them, and his doctor said, quote, To people like Steve, guilt is a court word. He didn't know what others considered to be a feeling of guilt, which is typical in psychopaths. They really don't have those feelings. The psychopath knows the words, but not the music. When asked why he, tar- why he strangled Terry, he said that he didn't know why he strangled her. He says, quote, Things were racing through my head. It was like putting a tape recorder on fast. Everything went wrong. I don't know what I was doing I don't know why I killed that girl now no one was really buying this insanity defense he covered up his crimes he took her to a secluded area with the intention of raping her he killed the children so they wouldn't be able to identify him he covered up his tracks so they wouldn't take shoe impressions or they couldn't take shoe impressions was he a psychopath yes was he insane fuck no he knew what he was doing The prosecuting attorney, in his closing statements, called Steve a liar. He said that he admitted guilt in such a way as to make jurors think that he was insane, but he wasn't. According to the prosecutor, the law presumes the defendant sane until proven insane, and a litany of psychiatrists had found Judy sane, saying that he wouldn't have done this had a police officer been standing at his elbow. In a dramatic statement, the prosecutor held up the little shoes of the children and declared, these shoes will never be filled again. You must find him sane. Now, Steve's attorney pointed out several flaws in the case, stating these reasons are why he's insane. Now, listen to the shit. This is a litany. He tried to set his sister on fire. He tried to burn his brother with a screwdriver. He had intercourse with his sister at the age of 10 or 11. He burned his neighbor's garage down for no reason. He was a peeping Tom at a young age. I don't think that makes you crazy. He lifted up girls' skirts. At age 11, he jumped in a car with a girl and kissed her. That makes you crazy. He thought the most serious offense at that point was smoking. He made obscene phone calls when he was young. At age 13, he viciously attacked, raped, and almost killed Carol Emig. Like we said, he's a sexual psychopath, not somebody who's insane. He made obscene phone calls at the Bob Carr home. Uh, He had a series of violent, unprovoked rapes, the, quote, ridiculous attack on a young woman in Illinois, the attack on Pam Barger at the post office lot in Indianapolis, acts of self mutilation, including tattoos. Now, if having tattoos makes you crazy, I should be in the loony bin, Uh, self-inflicted cuts and suicide attempts lack of guilt for all crimes and his belief that he could do what he chose to any female hitchhiker without fear of the law because he thought that any female hitchhiker who got into his car was his property and he could rape and assault her as he chose and the law could do nothing to him. He told his foster father this story and they had Carr repeat this at, the, uh, at trial for the jury. Now again, his attorney went back and outlined the reasons that could indicate Judy was insane at the time of the murders. It started out to be rape, though Judy had had sex all week, like I said, rape's not about sex it's about power uh the excited feeling that came over judy while he was in the chastine car now many killers and rapists say the same thing they get this feeling it's excitement they're not going to back down it doesn't make you crazy bad judgment to park in conspicuous area that doesn't make you crazy that makes you stupid rape occurred while children on down path but they returned as she was being tied and was screaming and the children began screaming and he lost control and killed them He had no history of being vicious to children, and he had no history of trying to kill witnesses or conceal his identity. And afterward, he bought an orange pop and returned home like nothing happened. Now, they don't know that he's killed anybody else. This is the only one he's ever been caught for. So how did they know that he has never tried to kill witnesses before? Uh, the The jury only deliberated for two hours. Now, at this time, after he was convicted, Judy stopped standing in respect uh, to the entering jury after the verdicts were returned. Uh, he sat as he gave this statement. Now listen to this shit. He says, quote, You know, at this time, I know that all of you people really feel like you did the right thing, all of you. And I know 10 years ago, I cried out for help and never got it. I'm telling each of you now, you'd better vote for the death penalty for me, because I will get out one way or another, and it will be... One of you, or it, I'm sorry, it may be one of you next, or one of your family. And he looks straight at the judge, and he says, that goes for you too, judge. That's it. <sighs> now later, th- this is why I say he's such a fucking narcissist. He made this all about him. He never said he was sorry. All he said was, I cried out for help. Y'all didn't help me, so if I get out, if I ever get the chance, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to escape. I think that's kind of what he was implying. I'm going to do it again. Now, he did give the deputy a note about a proposed escape that he wanted, to, he wanted to escape, and it says verbatim, and his his handwriting is really sloppy, but I'm going to read this anyway. I'm sorry I had to do this, but now maybe you'll realize with no reservations at all that you have to kill me if you won't help me. I could have left a long time ago, but I didn't because I don't want to hurt anybody else. Maybe now you'll know I'm serious when I said I'd get out somehow, and I will again if I go to prison, so... When you get me, you'd better kill me. P.S. I'll try to make it as easy as possible for you to catch me this time. If you haven't gotten me within three days, I'll give Gene Groves a call to make arrangements and turn myself in, Steve Judy. Now, now Gene Groves, I believe at this time, was the sheriff. Uh, now, before he left the, the courtroom, he decided, or before he left for Michigan City, they had transferred, they were going to transfer him out to Michigan City because it's a high security prison. Before he left for Michigan City, he decided he was going to speak with some of the newspaper there there was like 30 radio television and newspaper reporters and he told them that he's a ham he enjoyed the attention um, and that he watched the television replays and searched the papers from cover to cover for stories of himself now one newspaper person asked judy why would you appeal the verdicts to the supreme court if you really just want the death penalty and he says ah oh, it's just for those guys the attorneys they love this stuff before his execution, Steve had told his foster mother some of the crimes he had committed before this crime, to which nobody knew anything about. And in his words, he says, quote, I left a string of bodies across five states. Now, this includes Texas, Florida, Louisiana, Illinois, and Indiana. Uh, he said he raped and killed more women than he could recall. He admitted to her of killing a woman named Lisa Ungversack in November of 78. Lisa was a disco dance instructor in Indianapolis and her dead body was found in an abandoned house at 2900 Cold Spring Road, which was perhaps two to three miles from the Marsh supermarket where Inez Peel and Terry Lee Chasteen worked. Also in the shopping center was a, was like a dance studio called Piccadilly's. And whenever I started researching this, that's the first thing that came to my head was, I bet she worked at Piccadilly's. Anyway, he said that he had lost count of all the women that he had assaulted over the t- over the years. So on March 9th, 1981, nearly two years after he'd murdered Terry and her children and three months shy of his 25th birthday, Stephen Timothy Judy was executed at the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, Indiana. His last meal was a lobster tail, prime rib, baked potatoes, salad, and dinner rolls. That is an amazing dinner. They shouldn't have wasted it on that piece of shit. His trial... It, it was a huge deal because they had paid uh, roughly $78,000, taxpayers paid $78,000, and today's money, that's about $250,000 for this child. Both Mary Carr and his mother, Myrtle, made statements that reflected that the mental hospital and the legal system had treated him inadequately as a child and that perhaps he would not have committed these acts. Now, personally, I think that's a fucking cop-out. His mother's trying to cast blame on the state so that she doesn't have to feel guilty about raising a monster like this. Because, I'm sorry, I think some of the things that she did in his childhood, some of the way she had treated him, kind of led towards this attitude of, I can do whatever the hell I want because I'm the shit, and it's all about me. Anyway. After his execution, he was interred into the Floral Park Cemetery off of Washington and Tibbs or Washington and Holt. It depends on which direction you're heading, which is a stone's throw away from the central state hospital where it used to be. It's no longer there anymore. Several people at this time called the warden a murderer and said that the death sentence was barbaric. But public opinions varied, with others writing into the newspaper basically saying that the taxpayers had paid enough for this public spectacle that was his trial and that no more money should go to support a child-murdering monster. Like I said in the introduction, Terry and her children were buried apart. Uh, Misty was not Mark Chastain's legal daughter, though he loved her as his own. Terry and Misty are buried in the Brownsburg Cemetery where she grew up, because she, she grew up in Brownsburg. She went to the high school. Mark and Stephen are buried in the Fairfield Friends Cemetery located off of Camby Road north of State Road 67, Kentucky Avenue in Camby. It's a very tiny little blip on the map between Indianapolis and Mooresville. If you didn't know it was there, you probably couldn't find it. The brothers are buried together with a photo of each of them in tiny suits on their headstones. Today, Stephen would have been 45 and Mark would have been 43. Misty would have been 46. You imagine all the life that they missed. They're older than me. I'm 41. I can't imagine. They could have had children. They could have had grandchildren. They could have been somebody. They could have been the cure for cancer. Their father, Mark, died in 2006, and he's buried beside his sons. But that's it. That is the story of Steve and Judy. I guarantee you probably not heard of him unless you lived here forever. I've lived here all my life, and I'd never heard of this guy. So after my co-worker, Phil, had said, Hey, why don't you do a story about him? I looked him up and thought, Yeah, this is probably going to be the first story that I tell, because sometimes we don't know about these monsters, and... It's important to know. But anyway, thank you so much for joining me for my first episode of the Wheel of Crime podcast. Stay tuned and we're about to spin that wheel. All right, it's time, ladies and gentlemen, let's spin the wheel. And looks like the next episode we're going to talk about God made me do it. We're going to talk about cases where people say God made them do certain things, kill their children or their spouses. Hmm. Thanks for joining. Talk to you next time. still here? Go the fuck home. We're done. It's done. It's over. I gotta go. I gotta feed my chickens. Bye, bitches.